Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the UH West Oahu Health Spotlight. Today, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Cowie Moret, who is an assistant professor of Indigenous Health Sciences at UH West Oahu in the Math, Natural, and Health Science divisions. So thank you so much for joining me today. And we're going to go through some questions related to kind of the conversation and of social determinants of health. We're going to talk about it probably from a more global perspective or some basic information. And then we're going to talk specifically about this topic in relation to Hawaii and our indigenous populations. So Dr. Moret, thank you so much and welcome. Hi, thanks Dr. Williamson for having me on today. I heard you have some questions for me. I do. So our first question is, um, so we're going to start with the general question. Can you give us a definition of social determinants of health? Sure. So I'm going to start out by telling a little story um, that one of my mentors, Dr. Ichiro Kawachi from the Harvard School of Public Health, always used to tell. And so he would tell the story in our intro to um, social behavioral sciences class that, you know, and this is, it's not a story he made up. It's, uh, he got it from somewhere else. But, you know, there's, there's someone standing on the bank of a river and they're enjoying the day. And, and uh, all of a sudden they start to hear someone yelling, help, help, help. And they notice that there's a person floating downstream that's drowning. So they think, oh my gosh, I better, you know, jump in and save this person. So they jump in and they save the person that's floating down, you know, downstream and maybe you know, administering some CPR and getting them all set. And, and pretty soon there's another person floating downstream. You're like, help, 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 drowning. So they jump in and get that person. As soon as that, you know, as soon as they're, they're done saving that second person, they see a third person going by and a fourth person. And all the while, you know, this, the individual who's saving all these people starts to think, gosh, what's happening upstream to make all these people falling in the river? Um, and that's kind of, you know, a, an analogy for social determinants of health. And so if we use a story to think about social determinants of health, um, we can kind of situate them as, as anything that's happening upstream to cause that guy to be thrown in the river and almost drown as he was being, being carried downstream. So social determinants are, um, of health are social or cultural characteristics that can impact your access to healthcare or some kind of resource that might improve your health. So for example, being a biological female, um, you know, which is uh, not only brings about maybe some specific risks that men don't face, like ovarian cancer, dying in childbirth. Um, so you know, being a woman definitely has some specific risks associated with it. But uh, being a woman, which is a little bit different than being a biological female, also has been given certain social meaning in our societies. So women have faced a lot of discrimination in the educational system and in the workplace that might inhibit our ability to access quality health care. So in 2019, women made only about 79 cents for every dollar made by men. This makes it more difficult to afford expensive medical care. 24% um, of American workers uh, in this past year, you know, 2019, 2020 kind of period, didn't have access to paid sick leave um, from their jobs during the pandemic. And women are more likely to be part of this 24%. So this can force women to choose between losing wages, you know, or going to the doctor or staying home when they or a child are sick. Um, and <laughs> sorry, I'm a little furry, a furry companion here <laughs> just jumped up next to me. Um, we, we also see these kind of similar patterns among other vulnerable or marginalized groups, such as the elderly or LGBTQ. So social determinants are these kind of upstream factors or characteristics that trickle down to impact a person's individual health. Great, thank you. And we welcome the furry characters and the good she's co-workers. <laughs> she, yeah, my furry co-worker is, is here in my lab. So you might you might hear her from time to time or see yeah. her tail going there by she me. Is. <laughs> yep. Best work from home buddy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I have one too, but she's a 
She's taking a nap, but you know, she's tired out. Oh, yeah, mine is not tired. (laughs) Second question. So we have the definition, kind of a more generalized definition of social determinants of health. Um, And that's a great place for us to start our, our conversation. So my second question is more looking at it from an international standpoint. So internationally, what are some of the key social determinants of health? So I think hands down internationally, poverty and income inequality are the most pressing social determinants of health. So in my global health class, um, I always mention Marty Sand, and he's the winner of the 1998 uh, Nobel Prize in Economics and the author of the book, Development is Freedom. So Sand argues that targeted economic development that lifts populations out of poverty is really the key to liberty, freedom, and ultimately self-determination for marginalized or vulnerable populations. However, one thing that we really have to be careful about is carefully managing development and mitigating any unintended consequences. Um, And that's a a very delicate balancing act. So we have to start then thinking about um, things like involving community in in any kind of development and making sure that um, development is is culturally appropriate and um, acceptable to that population. And that's a key, I think a key aspect of that is the idea that we're not going to be able to fix poverty without having conversations and input from the community. And that's very much evident, I think, here in Hawaii. And so moving into our next kind of drilling this down, you know, from a big funnel down further. But now if we look at Hawaii specifically, um, what are some of your top concerns when we talk about health? Right. So bringing it home to Hawaii, again, poverty and income inequality are also probably the most important social determinants of health here in the island, especially among Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. However, these determinants weren't formed in a vacuum and are actually the result of historical trauma experienced by the Native Hawaiian population over the course of the past 250 years or so. So since Western Europeans uh, showed up in Hawaii in 1778, there have been a series of historical events that have created a cascade of trauma that has been transmitted through four or five generations of Native Hawaiians. So for example, in the first half of the 19th century, waves of infectious disease epidemics wiped out somewhere between 50 and 90% of the indigenous population. So just thinking about the absolute level of grief and devastation of those 50 or 70 years really brings tears to my eyes. So I've read some historical accounts Um, of carts driving through downtown Honolulu, collecting the bodies of cholera or smallpox victims. And thinking about that is really just horrendous. You know, like we're we're in this global pandemic now and it's so serious, you know, just just with how things are now, but imagine if COVID-19 had a 10 to 20 or even 30% mortality rate, like smallpox, you know, 30 to maybe even 90% in some, uh, some outbreaks, you know, imagine if we had a 10 to 20% mortality rate and COVID kept raging through the U.S. for 50 to 70 years. That's kind of what the depopulation would be like, you know, now. And like, if we think about, you know, just COVID having maybe a, a half a percent mortality rate, um, you know, and, and just the, the really horrible um, milestone of hitting 500,000 deaths in the U.S. here yesterday, uh, you know, that's, that's not even comparable to what, what the Native Hawaiian population was going through in the early 19th century. Now, granted, that wasn't, you know, the whole population because it was really the Hawaiian population that was getting hit uh, the worst from these infectious diseases because they were a naive population with no immunity. So, you know, it, it was a little bit masked unless you were in that community. But, you know, just kind of imagining what those families were going through and what people were going through um, at that time kind of hits home, especially now. So in addition to that really devastating depopulation, we also had a collapse of the traditional social religious institutions in 1819 when the Kapu system was broken by Queen Kaupumanu. Um, that was just in time for Calvinist missionaries from New England to show up in 1820. And, you know, they showed up to basically this, this social vacuum um, that was replaced by uh, very strict conservative uh, Christianity. 
that is still extremely evident in the Native Hawaiian community today. And so over the course of the next uh, 80 years or so, the children and grandchildren of those missionaries were really instrumental in disenfranchising Native Hawaiians, um, you know, not only from their political system, but also from their land base via the Great Mahele in 1848. And this was uh, done by converting our traditional land management system, the Akwa'a system, which had been in place since about the 1400s, um, to a private property, you know, Western um, land holding type system. And so a lot of Hawaiians lost their land um, in that conversion. And so moving ahead to the 1890s, we have the, the overthrow, a series of, of events that had to do with uh, economics and sugar industry employee and the really um, um, you know, stringent sort of racial hierarchy of, of labor on the Hawaiian sugar plantations and massive immigration from, from uh, Asia as well as from uh, the U.S. And kind of getting ahead to the 1890s, we have um, the overthrow of the Native Hawaiian Kingdom, the Hawaiian Kingdom, by the same children and grandchildren of these American missionaries with the assistance of the U.S. Marines in 1893 and then the annexation of the islands to the United States uh, in 1898. Um, you know, mainly because of, of sugar economics, uh, with sugar uh, free and post-civil war, and then also so the U.S. Navy could have um, control of Pearl Harbor, which was, you know, a just naturally formed as a very uh, sheltered but, but very deep water, you know, port um, in the middle of the Pacific. And it's a really valuable resource when you're trying to um, wage wars in, in Asia and whatnot all over. So I always think about this process uh, that occurred in the 19th century and how it relates to a pattern of violence and disease in my own family. And so I use the example in my classes um, of my, my great grandfather who was born in 1892, just a year before the overthrow. Um, and in, in Hawaiian tradition, there's, there is a you know tradition of, of kind of like don't, um, don't air your ancestors' bones. Like, don't talk about your ancestors' um, secrets or or faults. And I always tell my students, I'm going to break this because, um, and I'm going to tell you about my family. I'm going to tell you what went wrong in my family because we need to talk about it. We need to talk about some of these, um, you know, the the generations of of trauma and violence and disease that have been passed on in our community in order to heal from it. So, you know. Forgive me, Kupuna, for <laughs> talking about you now, but um, it needs to be done. So my great-grandfather's uh, father died when he was just a child. And my great-grandfather was the last Manaleo, or native speaker of the Hawaiian language in my family. But he refused to allow his three children to learn the language and really taught his children to disavow their Hawaiian heritage and to be as American as possible. So we had this, like, uh, break in the culture, you know, in my family just a couple of generations ago. And, um, you know, the, the thing about my great grandfather, I think he did the best that he could, but he was not a nice guy. Uh, my mother describes him as a cranky old man who was kicked out of Lunalilo, um, uh, you know, nursing home for Hawaiians. And uh, he had an even darker side. He was an alcoholic and he was physically abusive to my great grandmother. Sorry, this is always a hard story to tell about my family. Um, he also had, um, diabetes and that's a disease that my grandmother uh, my grandmother's sister my mother and several of their cousins have and i always think about you know what what did my great-grandfather live through what did he go through to make him the man that he was and um you know this led to um a very difficult environment that my grandmother and her sister and brother grew up in um my grandmother has also struggled with substance abuse, uh, alcoholism, and um, opioid addiction for, um, you know, much of her life, and and that influenced the the environment that my mother grew up in. Um, luckily, um, my grandfather was a really uh, caring man, and and my mother turned out all right. She's she's a social worker who's um, made it her her life mission to work in uh, Native Hawaiian behavioral health and really influenced you know, my career. And she kind of made it her life mission to not only help the, the Hawaiian community in general, but also to stop this cycle of violence and abuse in our family. And, um, you know, and, but unfortunately her body has not escaped the years of psychological and emotional stress 
And she now has at 69 years of age, um, almost 70 in a couple of months, multiple chronic illnesses, including asthma, diabetes, um, an autoimmune disorder that is causing her kidneys to fail. And she's a breast cancer survivor. Uh, she's also a survivor of, um, of assault and abuse herself, um, but she was able to you know, create a home for me uh, kind of starting in my teenage years that was um, healthy and, and loving and, and caring. And, and so I've been able to, you know, kind of turn, turn that corner in our family. Um, so just within, you know, my own little family, I've got this microcosm of the most pressing concerns that we see in Hawaii, which includes substance abuse, domestic abuse, um, diabetes, heart disease, and obesity, and other chronic, chronic illnesses. Thank you for sharing that um, personal insight. And um, we appreciate you, you know, being willing to give that information just to kind of illustrate some of the, you know, like you said, what happening in Hawaii, you can see it in one family. Um, and so it's very important that we kind of have these conversations to right. hopefully help heal and also to figure out how to address all of those issues. Um, which are also unfortunately <clears throat> being exacerbated by the current situation we're all living through. And so that leads us into our next question, specifically about the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what do you think has been brought to light in terms of social determinants of health because of the pandemic situation? Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, we had kind of two really key things that happened in the past, um, you know, 12, 12 months since uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has started. We've had, you know, not only the pandemic, but also the George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests during the summer of 2020. And so these kind of simultaneous dovetailing of these two incredibly, you know, powerful um, health and social movements has pulled back kind of the curtain and exposed this very insidious intersection between systematic racism and structural inequalities and, and health. Um, and so for the first time you know, in my life is kind of as, as horrified by, as it was over the summer to, to watch um, you know, these, these events unfolding with the pandemic, but also um, you know, the riots breaking out in, in Minneapolis. Um, my, my father's from Minneapolis and, or from outside of Minneapolis and my brother, um, my half brother, who is uh, Jamaican American, half Jamaican American and half white, um, grew up in Minneapolis and and has you know cousins who are who are there who are black men there and you know I always worry about them and, and so seeing kind of these these events unfolding I thought oh my god like this is what what's happening you know this is kind of crazy but on the other hand I was you know really. Um, not really excited, but, but heartened by the fact that for the first time I heard the terms uh, structural inequalities and systemic uh, racism uh, being addressed and discussed in the mainstream media. And that was a little kind of ray of, of hope for me. And, you know, during that time, I had a lot of um, white friends and, and family members, um, white cousins uh, from my dad's side that reached out to me and, and asked me, oh, can, can you explain some of these terms? I heard, you know, this term uh, systemic racism in the news and what, is, what does that mean? And, and also, you know, what is, um, they would seek my perspective as a native Hawaiian woman on some of these issues um, and also as an epidemiologist. And so it was really interesting to, you know, have these conversations that for the first time in my life, you know, I'm having these conversations with, with my cousins and my friends. Um, and they were asking like, well, how can we be a better ally? You know, like, what can we do? Um, and that was that was really nice. So for the first time, you know, I saw um, at least some people trying to step up and understand the mechanisms between social determinants like income inequality and poverty and COVID-19. So we started to see, you know, uh, through this pandemic and through this Black Lives Matter social movement, the, that those who were impacted most by the pandemic and the economic shutdown were most likely to be black, brown, and female. You know, and these are black and brown women who are more likely to be in service jobs or retail jobs, black and brown women who are less likely to be able to navigate the unemployment system, 
black and brown women who are more likely to be frontline workers and thus more likely to be exposed to COVID-19 and also to have uh, more likely to have underlying health conditions or live with someone with an underlying health condition and therefore at higher risk of getting severe disease or dying. Um, now, I think the unfortunate thing kind of with, with uh, this revelation was that uh, when I think when a lot of the, the country, maybe the, the previous administration saw that this was, you know, who, which population were, were shouldering the disproportionate burden of this disease, people kind of were like, oh, well, okay, let's shut it off. It's them, not us. Um, and, you know, the conversation um, around systemic inequalities and, you know, structural racism um, started to die down. Uh, and, and so, you know, that kind of, those of us who work in this area of, of um, you know, racial and ethnic health disparities and social epidemiology, we had our 15 minutes of fame in, in July and August of 2020. And now we're back to chugging along, doing, you know, doing what we're doing what we do and um, fighting the good fight, as my brother says. So, um, so that's, you know, at least, at least we now have a vocabulary, you know, we as a nation have a vocabulary to talk about these things. And I think, um, you know, although we haven't maintained the same level of, of interest or concern in the, you know, in the media, we've got our 24-hour news cycle, uh, that we had, you know, nine, six or nine months ago, at least I think it sparked an interest in some people. And I think, you know, for my students, it was definitely um, a time to see what they're learning in class in action. You know, I, I told I told that story um, about my family in the last question, and I always, you know, talk to my students about it. And every semester, I have students who, you know, then say, yeah, you know, my family is exactly the same. I now, now I get it. Now I understand what historical trauma is because you put it, you know, into a way that I can now see it in my family. And I think that, you know, what COVID-19 and uh, the BLM movement have done for America as a whole is to give a very like real time slap in your face example of what, um, you know, kind of our, our race-based system and our, um, you know, just skyrocketing income inequality in this country, like what the consequences are. And it's going to be up to us uh, in the next, you know, in the coming years or, you know, decades to try to reverse that. But one thing that I do kind of want to close up this question on is that I don't want people to uh, you know, be looking for a quick, like there's not a quick fix to this, you know, and, and I kind of, you know, talked to my mom about, about Hawaiian disparities and, you know, I think over her, her career, um, she's gotten frustrated in her old age, you know, ah, you know, there's nothing can be done. It's inevitable and blah, blah, blah. And I, I always say, mom, you know, it took, it took us 250 years to get here. It might take us 500 years to get back to where we should be. Um, and I think that's kind of the same thing with, with the U.S. is, you know, we have this, um, Kind of original sin is my, my brother and I talk a lot about um, you know race and discrimination. He you know he brings up the idea that that America has this original sin of um, you know racism that kind of has has held our country together to you know in a way that that it's it's you know it may take us a couple hundred years to uh, to right that wrong, and so you know this is going to be a really long road to working towards justice, but that doesn't mean that we should um, you know, give up. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And um, it's gonna take us a while to get out of this situation. And um, though 2020 was a really difficult year and has long standing kind of, re you know, impact moving forward, it did, give us an opportunity perhaps to just kind of look at certain things that were not part of many people's vocabulary, like you said, and hopefully we can continue those conversations, even though we're kind of out of the news cycle right now, everything's focused on um, getting us to the other side. And hopefully once we establish somewhat normal, whatever that looks like, that we will be able to take a step back and look at some lessons learned from 
from 2020 and from going through this pandemic, because it is a historical time. And so we need to use the information accordingly and not just kind of shelf, shelf it in a drawer and be done with it. Um, so then my next question is kind of looking at it more on a really, really local scale here on the island of Oahu. Um, how do our social determine, we talked about poverty, we talked about the economic piece uh, specifically for women and indigenous women, women of color, but how do the social determinants of health impact our healthcare access here in Oahu and perhaps also on the, um, the neighbor islands? So this really is, you know, you said, you know, this really is an issue of access and you kind of, you know, hit that, that word right on the, on the button. And, um, and I always talk about the, the three A's of, of healthcare, you know, affordability, accessibility, and acceptability. And so, you know, our healthcare needs to um, be financially accessible for our population, so affordable. Uh, it needs to be physically accessible, which is difficult in a state where we've got you know, people living on different islands. If we have a, you know, one population hub that's very concentrated in one city, and even though you know, we still have, um, you can get in your car and drive from Wailua to Honolulu, but it's a long drive. Um, and it's, you know, it's like a whole day thing. And, and then we've got, you know, people on, on neighbor islands who are, uh, it takes, you know, maybe got to get up real early in the morning, take the first flight out, rent a car. The flight is two hundred dollars. You got to rent a car for another hundred dollars. You know, there's then you got to buy lunch and you know maybe dinner and, and it's you know a whole like a whole thing to um, just come to Oahu for a day it could be you know, several hundred dollars, especially if there's two people. And so if you need that kind of specialized care um, to come to Oahu is really a financial burden and but we don't have the, the um, you know, the, the means to really um, hold up large scale uh, specialty clinics on the neighbor islands. And then our, our last, um, the last aid that I talk about is acceptability. So, um, and you know, I think, I think we're gonna cover, you know, kind of the cultural piece of healthcare a little bit later. So I don't wanna focus on that, but I wanna go back to this issue of access and accessibility. So my, I have um, my family, I'm from Oahu, but my family mainly lives on Hawaii Island. And I have a cousin with, um, I think it's four little girls now. Well, they, they live in Iowa now, their mom's from Iowa, but I can never remember how, <laughs> he keeps having more kids. So I think he's on four, four his fourth daughter now. But when the oldest, uh, the oldest was born in 2001, so she's actually, she's just all grown up now. Um, but uh, my little cousin, when she was three years old, uh, they were living in, in Hilo and um, she broke her arm. They, uh, North, I think she's living in North Hawaii. They were living in Waikoloa at the time. Uh, so they, because they were going to uh, a North Hawaii hospital, but she broke her arm and you know, her, my cousin, her dad took her to the, the emergency room and um, North Hawaii hospital. and. They put her in a soft cast and they said, well, you know, we don't have an orthopedic surgeon um, on Hawaii Island. So you have to wait three days, from, you know, three or four or five days until the orthopedic surgeon can come from Oahu. You know, he makes twice a month visits. And so you got to wait until he comes uh, to see this, the surgeon. And I just, you know, think, my God, my poor little, you know, baby cousin, three years old, sitting around for how many days with a broken arm and a soft cast, like, I was thinking about, you know, how much pain she must have been in and how uncomfortable that must have been for days. And, but it really wasn't um, possible for them to get on an airplane with, at, at the time, she only had uh, one younger sister, the other two were, were born a bit later. Um, you know, but even for four of them, or even for two of them, for my cousin to take his daughter, that would have been, you know, several hundred dollars for them to come to Oahu to get that specialty care. And so she had to wait as a toddler for days um, to get, you know, that, that specialty care. So one of these, one of our, you know, really um, important solutions that we can do to address this, this issue of access um, for especially rural Oahu 
and our, our neighbor island communities is to grow our own doctors and to grow our own allied health professionals who are more likely to remain in their in their communities. And so we do have um, some some great programs um, throughout the University of Hawaii system that are, are specifically aimed at doing that. And I've, I've been a part of the UH uh, system professionally since um, 2005, as I, I started out as a research assistant, um, graduate research assistant at the Department of Native Hawaiian Health and at the School of Medicine. And one of the things that we were talking about you know, even back then, uh, 15, 16 years ago, was, was our um, you know, kindergarten to medical school pipeline and specifically trying to get Native Hawaiian students um, from you know, kindergarten up through college, up through medical school. And, um, and we're, you know, I think we've made progress. We've made a lot of progress um, in that area, you know, thinking about how the first, first uh, medical, medical school class at Jabson was, I think it was 67 or 68, and they had a handful of Hawaiians, and they kind of had a handful of Hawaiians in every class, you know, going along. And then um, the class of 2010 got in in 2006, and um, I, I got rejected from that class. That's okay. I had several friends who were accepted and they had the largest class and they had 12 native Hawaiians in that class. And that was like, everybody was just blown away um, because, you know, they had so many Hawaiians. And then immediately after that dropped down um, to, you know, the, the usual kind of half a dozen or so. But I think, you know, as I've sort of made my rounds um, through the UH system and now I'm at West Oahu, I, I'm seeing a more streamlined pipeline. You know, we have... Um, a lot of undergraduate, you know, kind of programs. We have um, the the Bachelor of Applied Science at um, of for Hawaiian Indigenous Health and Healing at UH West Oahu that I'm the faculty lead for, which can then you know funnel into the Native Hawaiian Indigenous Health uh, Masters in Public Health track at UH Manoa. We have an, a certificate of Indigenous uh, Public Health at in um, UH Hilo, and we've got um, the Imi Ho'ola program at Jabsum, which is uh, actually a program that I was involved in, but didn't make it out of it, <laughs> at, that specifically targets um, individuals who are in underrepresented minority populations, whether that's ethnic minority, ethnic or cultural minority, um, socioeconomically disadvantaged or educationally disadvantaged populations. And so that will help to get when I was in it in 2007, there were 10 of us. And now I think they've increased their cohort number to 12 or 16 or something. And so that's you know kind of that connector from undergraduate into uh, medical school. We've got a lot of Native Hawaiian scholarships. We have the Native Hawaiian Health Scholarship Program that specifically aims at uh, aims to to educate um, Native Hawaiian uh, health professionals, whether they're medical, psychologists, social worker, public health. You get a free, um, you know, full ride plus a stipend to your school of choice, but you do have to come back and do um, some service provision uh, work. So it's a year to year. If you do uh, two years of like an MSW program, you have to come back and do a two-year placement in a underserved community, um, and that would be a repayment back. So if you did four years of medical school, then you would come back and after your residency be placed um, to do four years of, of repayment work on in some uh, underserved community in Hawaii. Um, I think one of our other ways that we can address this issue is also to expand the use of allied health professionals, such as nurse practitioners or physician's assistant. And I think that's one thing that UH West Oahu really excels at is we have um, you know a lot of programs that are focused on allied health professionals and health sciences. So our, um, you know, of course our, our pre-med track, but we have a occupational therapy, physical therapy track. We have our um, bachelor of science in, in respiratory therapy. We have um, the, the new physician's assistant, you know, pre-PA program. And so we have all of these, except for nursing and social work, but we that's, you know, covered by some of the other campuses. So we do have a really strong showing is specifically at UH West Oahu to kind of bump up these um, the numbers of allied health professionals that are homegrown, specifically from you know, 
rural Oahu, um, rural West Oahu. And I think, I think we really shine, you know, West Oahu in that, in that area. Great, I love that. Affordability, access, and acceptable. So we're gonna talk about the last piece. Um, but yes, we really do have a great need um, across the healthcare spectrum um, to kind of grow our own so that people are educated here and then they stay here and give back to their, to, to their community through the healthcare system. So let's talk a little bit about the last piece of your three A's. Um, so you're in kind of a unique position, right? You're, you're dealing with this indigenous side and the Western side. So how do you hope future health professionals will use both Western medicine and indigenous health and wellness practices to address some of the disparity issues here in Hawaii? So, um, you know, I mentioned a little earlier that I'm the faculty uh, lead for the Bachelor of Applied Science in Hawaiian Indigenous Health and Healing at UH West Oahu. That is an incredibly unique program. It's uh, one of a kind in the U.S. There are a couple in Australia and Canada that have a similar model, but in terms of what we offer um, is, is unique within the United States. We're the only four-year bachelor's degree program that combine, combines traditional healing with uh, kind of Western health sciences and Western epidemiology. And, you know, I was, I, I kind of always tell people, I, I landed my dream job in this, in this position. I'm, I'm sort of originally trained as a, to be a biomedical research scientist. And that's what I was doing in my postdoc at Jabsum, um, but really missed teaching. And so when this opportunity came up that, you know, I was able to, here it was, you know, able to kind of grow this program almost from scratch. You know, the two, our two faculty members that were absolutely instrumental in starting the, the development in this program were Antimonu Meyer and uh, Dr. Rick Custodio. And they sort of laid the groundwork for this program for me. And then when I stepped in, um, handed me the reins and was, you know, kind of said, here you go, <laughs> take it over. And so, so the, the purpose of um, this program embodies the what I hope that um, you know we can see in the future of health professionals uh, in terms of the melding of Western and indigenous uh, medicine and I really hope that Western trained health professionals and employee will take the time to become more educated in indigenous uh, health and wellness practices and so you know when, when I first started this program I had there there were some community concerns that oh are you trying to train you know um, are you trying to train uh, traditional you know, healing practitioners? And I would say, no, absolutely not. That's 100% not what we're trying to do. This is, this is a Western university. I'm a Western trained you know, academic professor. Um, and, and it's not my place to, to train traditional healers. But what I'm trying to do in this program is to train future Western you know, health professionals to be um, a little more ma or a little more aware or comfortable with traditional healing practices, uh, such as la'au, la'au, herbal medicine, or lomi lomi, which is our, um, our, our massage therapy, or ho'oponopono, which is a, our traditional form of family mediation. And so I'm not, you know, wanting uh, Western, Western, you know, physicians or nurses to go out and actually learn how to how to be these types of healers, unless unless they want to, but that's they're not going to learn it from, from me or this program. They've got to go out to the community and find their own teachers and their own kumu. Um, but you know, I just am trying to get them a little bit exposed to some of these practices so that when they have a, a Native Hawaiian um, patient who, who comes along and says, oh, doc, yeah, I've been drinking noni juice for my diabetes, uh, they don't freak out and tell them to say no or, you know, because that then puts the patient, you know, marginalizes the patient and uh, can, you know, maybe even put the patient in danger because they might start doing those things uh, in secret and not telling their health professional. And a lot of these medicines are very powerful and can have interactions with, um, with you know, pills and other types of medications. So you really do have to let your physician know everything that you're taking and, and all the practices that you're doing. Um, you know, because they might have some kind of interaction and you want to be able to build that trust 
uh, and have you know that acceptability in your healthcare you know system and with your healthcare professional that you know your healthcare provider that that you can talk to them about these things and that your healthcare provider will um, be understanding of them and kind of know okay you know that's great that's something we can work with I'm really glad to hear that you're you know being proactive about your health and um, you know putting putting your health in your own your own hands and and um, and let's let's talk about how we can integrate these two, uh, you know, these two types of you know your your noni drink, your noni juice, or you know, uh, your uhaloa that you're taking for your asthma, or your you know kukui sap that you're using um, for fungus for antifungal, and, and let's talk about how that would work with some of the other um, medications that I may be prescribing you, and you know it's it's important to. You know, talk to your physical therapist if you also go to see a lonely, lonely practitioner, um, because you don't want them working against each other. You know, you want them to be working with each other. I think this is also really important when you, um, especially I think in the field of substance abuse, when you have issues like historical trauma that you know generate intergenerational trauma that you need to heal. That can't always be healed by Western techniques. So we have a lot of um, evidence from the substance abuse field that culturally based treatment really works. A lot is anecdotal. We don't have a good enough uh, evidence based of research on these type of practices yet. But if you go to um, places like Kool who works with uh, Ka'ala Farms and Wai'anae with Uncle Eric Enos and you talk to some of their graduates, they will tell you being in the Lo'i saved my life. Being in the Lo'i helps me keep clean because I'm I'm in the land, I'm with my ancestors, I'm with, um, we have a, a tradition in, in the Hawaiian culture that the taro plant is our older brother and his name is Halua Nakalaukulili. And so the taro uh, plant was grown out of the, the stillborn body of our older brother. And so we have this reciprocal genealogical relationship with taro, which is our main you know, starting staple um, and the land that it grows from. And so we have to be, you know, We've been disconnected from the culture. We've been disconnected from our traditional food sources and uh, the land. We have to get back in it in order to regain that connection. Um, and so, when you talk to you know people who have been through these uh, substance abuse treatment programs, and they tell you, yeah, digging in, being in Aloha is not just digging in the dirt. That actually saved my life. It's reconnecting me with with my ancestral land, with my ancestral foods and my ancestral practices. And, or you'll, you know, hear um, other clients talking about how being in hula saved their life and how, you know, just going to hula class uh, for a couple of hours uh, once a week and having that discipline, you know, to be, to be a dancer, you have kind of uh, status in the Hawaiian community. Being, being a hula dancer is a very coveted, you know, kind of role and, and to have that kuleana or that responsibility is uh, very important and can give, you know, someone who's who's suffering from um, a lot of trauma, uh, it can give them kind of, you know, a reason, a reason to live and also to give them discipline and structure. When you have hula, you have one hour a week where you have to block everything out and all you focus on for that hour is being a dancer. And, and thinking about uh, you know, the words of the chants and the movements, and you start usually with an oli or a chant. We usually start on uh, Palau or Hulits will start with Ehol Mai, which is a kind of a, a grounding and intentional, uh, just three lines, it's really short, and just a grounding, uh, this grounding practice to um, call out to the powers that be and the spirits to help us, you know, open ourselves up, open our hearts and our minds to receive whatever information that, you're supposed to learn from this hour in hula. And it just gets us in that moment of, um, you know, okay, for the next hour, we're gonna do hula. And that's that. And that's all we're gonna worry about. And that's all we're gonna think about. Um, and then also, you know, we've also, I've also heard stories from clients where they, um, you know, learning uh, genealogy of Guau Hao and is, has also kind of help them to get their lives, you know, together and, and go through that process like I did when I told the family about my uh, story about my family that, 
you know, they start to learn about who their family was, where they've come from, and not just, um, you know, number one, the mistakes that some of their family members have made, but also a lot of the, the strength and strengths and uh, resiliency that their family members have, have exhibited to just heck survive in the past 200 years. Um, and also to gain, you know, more compassion for, for some of our ancestors. You know, that's kind of something that I've had to do with, with my own, you know, grandmother and great grandfather and looking at what they've had to live through um, to, to kind of make them, you know, who, who they are today. And so these practices of working in Omogi, um, dancing hula, looking into Mokuauhau or genealogy, these are some of the practices that I, I hope our Western professionals can be um, more educated about and, and also, you know, maybe, you know, so that they're more comfortable when their patients bring it up. But also if they see a patient who's not engaging in, in some of these practices, being able to then recommend, hey, you know, I'm not um, a, a kumugula, but I know someone who is, and maybe, you know, maybe it'd be really fun for you. You get some exercise, um, you know, you, it, it's kind of cultural, uh, and hula you know, is a really good, good way to not only heal kind of emotional wounds, but also to get some great exercise. There's some some cool studies that come out of the, the Department of Native Hawaiian Health at Japsom with um, Melly Look that have actually validated hula as a, um, a method for cardio, cardiovascular uh, rehabilitation. So instead of you know going to a gym and sitting on your exercise bike for 45 minutes, three times a week, you go to pool class. And, um, and that actually lowered lower blood pressure, um, significantly and clinically lowered blood pressure, um, and also lowered, um, you know, had participants lose weight. They had, they reported more satisfaction and happiness at the end of, of the 12 week um, you know, pool intervention compared to their peers who were in the control group, you either you know went to a regular cardiac rehab program or who just got a pamphlet about hey stay active and healthy after your heart attack. And so we, you know, I, I want uh, Western health professionals to uh, learn about some of these practices and and be able to have um, contacts within the community and be able to uh, create a a denser network of acceptability for our um, you know, Hawaiian and Pacific Islander uh, communities. Great. Um, thank you so much for sharing that great information. Um, I think one of the things that Western people, so to speak, or people who are in the Western viewpoint have to understand about indigenous knowledge and ancestral knowledge is that it's been around longer and therefore it has validity, even though we can't quantify it perhaps, or there's no studies to show um, the benefits of certain things. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't work. Um, and, and we have to be mindful and respectful of that. And the integration of both of those can be very powerful for someone suffering from diabetes or heart disease or whatever they may be suffering from. Well, that concludes our questions for today. So thank you so much for sharing your time, your knowledge, your insight, um, and your personal stories. I appreciate it. Did you have any final thoughts you wanted to share on social determinants of health? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I kind of wanted to to close out um, with something that I always encourage my, my students to do. Um, when I was in my, my doctor program, we had a kind of research seminar where um, I was in a T32 uh, training grant for um, underrepresented minority students in my, in my doc program. And we had to go to seminar every week and um, every couple of weeks we would have a scholar of color coming in and presenting their research and and at the end um we would have a question and answer time and you know it's kind of i think our uh, our professors you know in, intended it to be like a you know research kind of question and answer but we always ended up talking about kind of their life story and their life journey and that's sort of where the the conversation ended up and that was actually the most valuable you know for us students kind of looking back on that we would talk amongst ourselves and say you know hearing the the life journeys and the stories of these scholars was actually more important 
you know, more impactful for us than, um, than just their, their research. You know, the research was always cool. It was always interesting, but to hear their stories of, you know, resilience and kind of what they went through, um, to get where they did was very important. So I always like to kind of, you know, close out when I talk about, you know, these kind of forums and, um, to students who, you know, especially students from my community, um, from the Native Hawaiian community, that you know, to to dream, you know, dream big, work hard, um, and that you know, try to harness the resilience of of your community um, and of your family and of your culture, and that will take you very far in life. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I see that in our students at West Oahu, I see that passion and that, that resilience and that drive. And, um, and you know, I, I just wanna emphasize that um, to kind of follow, you know, follow their hearts and, and they'll, they'll be able to, you know, pick themselves up and <laughs> no, matter, no matter how long it takes or what they have to do that they can always, you know, achieve their dreams. Yes, persistence and uh, kind of having your support system, whoever that may be, whatever that may look like, um, to help you along the way, right? So that includes our time. So thank you so much again, Dr. Merritt, for joining us today. We appreciate you and um, thank you for sharing your expertise on epidemiology topics, social determinants of health, and I hope again that we continue this conversation as colleagues and as people of color um, in the nation and the world so that we can move towards finding some answers to some very key um, elements that have been brought to light in the last 18 months or so. Absolutely. Thanks Dr. Williamson for having me today. I really appreciate it. Um, having this time to speak and, and share my my thoughts my novel um, and really enjoyed our time together so everyone that concludes our episode for the month thanks so much and stay tuned for our march episode of the uh health spotlight